Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these historical accounts from history that remind us that you never change. Lord, what a great comfort to us in a time when life can be difficult, when opposition is growing towards you and your people. Lord, we praise you that you are still the same God today. And we pray that each of us would leave this place today knowing how that both challenges us and encourages us in wonderful ways. So we pray for, you, for the help of your Holy Spirit now to both understand and to live by your word in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We mentioned before, I can remember the first evening that Wendy and I attended this church and at the time the evening service was held in the, in the hall there. And that was in 1985. And you might not be thinking this way yet, but one day you will. What happened to the last 34 years? It just goes so fast. And so much changes. I mean, who would have thought in 1985 that the Berlin Wall would have come down just a few years later? Who would have thought of the changes that have come to government and to the morality of this nation in recent years? We have endorsed, and we have to own that, you know, the majority of Australians have endorsed same-sex marriage. In Victoria, there is now assisted suicide. We could go on and on, couldn't we, with all the changes that have happened in that time. But, you know, even though much has changed in this country, much has changed in terms of morality that's acceptable, the practices of government, uh, that there's no longer this expectation of integrity, but of just the cleverest politicians gaining power. But who would have thought we now have a Christian politician, uh, although we need to pray that he'd have courage and boldness in what he does. But here's the thing, while so much changes through history, there's some things that haven't changed. Now, the obvious thought we have at this point from our reading is that God doesn't change. But that's not the only thing that doesn't change. In, in one sense, the world has not changed at all. We still live in opposition to God, but personally, we still are challenged by all the same questions. Who am I? Where do I belong in this world? Do I even matter in this world? It's still the questions of every person. It's why they explore space looking for the origins of our earth. It's why they explore looking for alien life. It's why people do science and try to explain who we are and why we're here and to find purpose from life. See, all those questions are still the same. There's still a fear of death and a denial of the real reason why death has come into this world. There's still a need to find answers for our young people for whom anxiety is something that marks their generation. You see, nothing's really changed about humankind. We still need answers. And, and here's our task as Christians, is to really ask ourselves, what is the message we have to share that no one else has to share that answers those questions that everyone has about life, death and eternity what is it that we can share? And what we're looking at today is really just a starting point because it's where the Bible starts. It introduces us to a creator God. It introduces us to a God who has a purpose, a plan for us as humanity. It's a God who has an answer for our fallenness into sin 
and where we're going to refine ourselves as human beings in terms of purpose and meaning and identity. And aren't they real issues in society today? A society that says we don't need God and yet they're asking questions that no one has answers for. That's our task. So right at the beginning of this chapter, I want you to notice, when we think of what we can be sure of in a changing world, yes, the world still has the same issues to deal with, the same answers or questions to find answers for, uh, but we need to be like Nebuchadnezzar, who declares to the world what they do not know, and that is that God is the most high over all the earth. We need to introduce them to God and what he's like and be able to testify to the difference he makes in our lives. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. This is his experience, but it's exactly the same God and the same issues that we deal with in our own lives and in this world today. So here's the first point, if we can make it, reinforced from Daniel 4. It is an absolute truth that we all need to know. And when we understand the first part of Daniel, the, the book of Daniel, if you like, a prophetic book, but also a book of history, in the first three chapters, Nebuchadnezzar conquers the known world. So Nebuchadnezzar is a really powerful king, and Daniel is a captive from Israel that is part of that conquest, who is serving the king in his administration. Uh, he's already been introduced to Daniel because in chapter 2 he's already had a dream. And he's seen that while he's great, his kingdom's going to fall. And yet he seems to have forgotten that already. But when we get to chapter 4, you would think, reading the power of Nebuchadnezzar, his conquest, what he rules over, the glory of his kingdom of Babylon, um, is it any wonder? Who would doubt that he's the boss over everything? Who would doubt that the gods he prays to, the gods he worships, the gods he names Daniel after are not the true gods. When we think of the society we live in, when we think of the world we live in today, while we might not build great big statues of golden gods, yet we worship the things that God has given and not God himself. And that's a clear message throughout scripture. And so what Nebuchadnezzar declares in these first three verses should surprise us. One, because he worships other gods. He's not by his nationality, a worshipper of the God of Israel at all. And he's also the king who's conquered, who could say, these gods have enabled me to become the boss of everything. But what does he say in these three verses? Verse 2, it's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So Nebuchadnezzar could be singing Colin's Buchanan song now, couldn't he? Nebuchadnezzar is not the boss, uh-uh. But he's come to that realisation, to that self-awareness through what God has done in his life, that there's no one greater, the Most High God, sovereign over heaven and earth, true in Babylon 2,600 years ago, and true today, despite the claim of humanity to be king, to be the boss of their own lives, to be the boss of the destiny of the countries in which they rule. So friends, one, we find ourselves enjoying the pleasures of life, 
perhaps even the pleasures, the fruit of our hard work for a lifetime. We need reminding, do we not, of who is really in charge. And as we look at circumstances in the world, as we even look at the changes in the culture of our nation, and let's not be fooled, the progressive people who are wanting to maintain the changes in morality in this country are just re-establishing their plan for their next assault. Let's not think that a Christian Prime Minister is the end of the opposition to the church in Australia and that it will reverse all the moral decisions already made. But here's the thing. There's only one most high sovereign God. And as Nebuchadnezzar will tell us later on, his, it's his purposes that will stand and the peoples of the earth will not. We need to see it personally too, don't we? Like Daniel and his friends captive in a foreign land, when we experience grief and loss, when we experience disappointment in life, when we face the difficulties of growing older, of death itself, there is a most high God. And if he's our God, then we have nothing to fear. Let's see how it came about for Nebuchadnezzar. Let's see the dream that we each need to understand. Because what it reveals to us first is the gods that can't help. In verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar says he was at home in his palace, contented and prosperous. And there's a saying in Australia, isn't there, that a man's home is his castle. And Nebuchadnezzar's story sounds a lot lot like the great Australian dream, to be at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And while we as Christians will thank God for all the prosperity we have, most Australians would say God has nothing to do with it. I got here through my own hard work. Much like Nebuchadnezzar, who not only thought he was the boss, but that everything he had was a result of his own wisdom and strength. And God shakes him up in a dream in verse 5, in his contentment. Now just think about that for a moment. In a country where we're saying, oh Lord, preserve our peace, preserve our prosperity, and even Christians are doing that. The reason God shakes up a nation is that they might realise that in their contentment and self-sufficiency, they need to know there is a God in heaven. And so in verse 5, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. This is a God at work in his life. And we won't go through every detail again because it's quite clear, isn't it, in verses um, that follow, in verses 6 to 7, after he'd had this dream, he commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be brought to interpret the dream. Isn't it interesting to you that after in chapter 2, the only one that could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream was Daniel, yet he gets to this new dream and the first place he goes is not to Daniel, but to the wise men, the enchanters. In other words, the, the gurus of his gods and religion of that day. That's where he goes first, not to Daniel. And I wonder if that's not true for us as well that when we face those dilemmas, those challenges to our faith, those challenges to our prosperity and our peace, our contentment in our castles, if you like, that we first go 
to human agencies to find our help and relief. And this is true of Australia. And we need to, we need to understand this, that as Christians there should be something different here. We shouldn't be trusting in those things that the world does. Of course there's a place for doctors. There's a place for counsellors. There's a place for financial advisors. There's a place even for holidays and for shopping to, to do what we need to do. There's a place even for Google, if you can believe that. But when it comes to the questions of life and death and eternity, when it comes to the matters of human value and of human identity, then there's only one person to go to, and that is the Most High God, who is the King of Heaven. And what we see happening in Western culture today, and we see it in Australians today, is that we separate our physical experiences and world from our spiritual. So you go to church on Sunday and you get some spiritual help, but in every other area of life, we instantly go to the human agents for help. We want to separate that. I see that working in the school. I see that working in the city of Melbourne when we were, that people come to you to say, I'm sad, I have these problems. But in every other area of their lives, they're going first to counsellors. They're going first to seek the help of Centrelink or all these other people. And I'm saying if in Nebuchadnezzar's case, everything ultimately points, all his problems, all that's happening in this dream ultimately points to the fact that he is not acknowledging the Most High God means that that is the first place we should be going. Not to all these other things, looking for our identity and our purpose and our answers. This God is sovereign over time and history and every circumstance. So we need to understand the gods that can't help us with the spiritual, the eternal, and with what makes life meaningful and purposeful. And we see in our next point that this is the God that Daniel reveals through the dream that helps us and warns us. In verses 8, finally it says, notice that, because he tries all these other gods first. The last place he goes to is the God of heaven. But finally, Daniel came in. It's almost as if Daniel allows him to try everything else until he realises that there really is no answer in the world and the gods of this world. The gifts of God do not give us the answers for the greatest questions of life. And Daniel comes in, he tells him the dream, and Daniel, he interprets the dream. Now the dream's quite clear, isn't it? In verses 10 to 16, there's this giant tree that spreads its limbs through all the earth and every animal and every bird finds its food and protection and shelter there. And Babylon was a nation like that. It was a place where the nations were brought exiles. He was trying to sort of create this one world kingdom, if you like. And so his kingdom is huge. His power is enormous. And it's a prosperous place. So people's needs are met in abundance. There's luxury there way beyond even what we experience today in terms of excessive luxury. And you'll see those kind of words used in Revelation 18. But the meaning of the dream is that an angel will chop down the tree. And then it changes the illustration, not to a tree, but to a hymn. In other words, he 
will be driven away. He will become insane. He will lose everything for seven years. And the purpose of the dream is very clearly explained in verses 17 to 18. It says, The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Belshazzar, has. He's already seeing the meaning here. It's announced to him, even before the event happens, that he might know that this God is the only true God. Here's a very basic meaning to the story, isn't it? If you think you are in charge, that the story of the universe is all about you, you're dreaming. And that's what people think, isn't it? We're, we're our own boss, we determine our own future, and it's all about me. Well, the message is clear. Don't wait for God to cut you down to size. But we also notice the merciful God that we have, do we not? This is the God we present to the world around us, a merciful God, despite our sin. This is a God who warns. This is a God who calls us to know him. This is a God who, in warning, would have us seek his peace. And we see it as Daniel interprets a dream further in verse 24, and God speaks through Daniel. Now, we almost don't see Daniel in this passage, do we? It's, it seems to be all about 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 Nebuchadnezzar, but actually it's not because Daniel's in the background, this faithful man of God in a kingdom that's bent against God, yet there is a voice for God that God uses to actually bring this great king to his knees. Isn't that interesting? That God works through his faithful people. Uh, That can be us in our generation in what seems to be an impossible place to live because of the power that's exercised by those who do not know God. But notice that, that Daniel is the one God uses to bring this interpretation. O king, in verse 24, this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. He says he'll be driven away. And right at the end, you'll notice that Daniel himself, who could say, oh great, I can't wait for this to happen. Have you ever felt like that as a Christian? If only God would slay the wicked. If only God would deal with these Islamic militant groups who, who torture his people. Like our feeling is destroy, destroy. The sooner the better. Daniel implores this, this king, this self-determining king, to acknowledge God before it's too late. That he might know the mercy of God. Isn't that our task too? It's not to seek the destruction of the wicked. Jesus himself said, pray for those who persecute you. Love those who persecute you. Friends, we need to see that as our task in this age. Our task is not to destroy. That's in the hand of God. Our task is to pray for those that they, like many before them, like Nebuchadnezzar himself, who would have thought this great king would ever acknowledge the God of heaven in humility? But that's God's job, to destroy and to save. Our job is to implore sinners to receive the Saviour, to know his mercy before it's too late. And so, so Daniel, you notice it there. Therefore, O king, he says, be pleased to accept my advice. Here's the preacher. Here's the gospel preacher in that day. 
renounce your sins by doing what's right, your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. He doesn't seek his downfall. And you know, the people who were taken into exile were told to settle there. They were told to seek the welfare of the wicked nation that destroyed them, that they might know God's blessing through even that nation. Now, friends, maybe that redirects us as Christians in our age as we think about the change, the threat it brings to us, whether it be from the Islamic um, people or from a, from a governments and governments that are bent on turning away from God, an education system that wants to deny there is a God. But, friends, we need to seek the welfare of this nation and of its rulers. We need to seek the welfare of those who persecute the people of God. And we need, when we have opportunity, to introduce the God of heaven to them and implore them to bow the knee to him. This is a God who warns. But we need to note too, and there is that message in the gospel itself, that he is a God you don't want to mess with. Because in verses 28 to 33, God fulfills his promise warning to Nebuchadnezzar. And we see why in verse 30, because Nebuchadnezzar ignored his warning, his dream. And Nebuchadnezzar, 12 months later, so that, that's a pretty good patience on God's behalf, is it not? Having given such a clear message to him, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built? as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. If Nebuchadnezzar was in the US today, he'd be a, a good rival to Donald Trump, would he not, with his big ego and his boasting. But here's the punchline. Is there not a bit of Nebuchadnezzar in each of us? Pride. You know when that pride really reveals itself? It's not so much when you're looking at what you've achieved. It's when it goes bad and you say, why are you doing this to me, God? You see, that reveals the heart of pride, that I deserve something better, that I'm entitled. That's such a mark of this society today, that mark not of gratitude for all that God has given, but that mark of entitlement that I deserve it. That is mine by my own hard work. And what right does anyone, especially God, have to deny me my happiness? And isn't that the mark of this society? We have iPod, iPhone, iPad, iTunes. We want an iGod that at the press of a button we get what we want instantly. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that all the good things in this life, even our abilities and accomplishments and discoveries are only possible before, because of God, who is sovereign creator and king. He gives, but he can take back. And the biggest reminder of that to each of us is death itself. God gives life. God takes life back. Sometimes earlier, sometimes later. But our destinies are all in the hand of this God. Friends, I don't know where that leaves you this morning before we get to the good news, <laughs> but we need to remember 
that what we have is not an entitlement. It's a gift. And it's a gift that God wants us to use wisely for him. But here's the good news in our last point, and that is of a restoration we can experience and need to experience. God kept his word in judgment. God also keeps the word of his promise to restore and to save. And so in these last verses, we're told in verse 36, as Nebuchadnezzar has acknowledged that God does as he pleases, even with the powers of heaven, but also the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because you see, he's the creator who gives everything good. It's to him we answer. The story of the world is not about you and me, it's about him. We have a place in his story, but we are not the story. And we need to remind ourselves to demonstrate the difference that makes. You know, we have a place in God's story. We have a place in community like church and family. We need to see that it's ultimately God whose story we live within. And that's really in that that thing. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because it's all about his eternal story. It's all about his quest to save, his purpose to bring people to know him. And when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that, in verse 36, his sanity was restored, his honour and splendour were returned to him, and there is again his place in the glory of that kingdom. And he sought out and he even becomes greater than before under the hand of this sovereign God. Now isn't that a wonderful restoration? God promised us to restore those who humble themselves before him. Isn't it also a wonderful thought that through suffering comes something greater? Because that's another thing. Our modern culture, Australian Western culture, does not have. It's a theology of suffering. When suffering comes, we want euthanasia. When suffering comes, we want there to be an instant fix. But in God's purposes, suffering brings us to know him and to know his blessing. That's a wonderful thought, is it not? Even for God's people today, uh, for you, for me, whatever the future holds. But it led Nebuchadnezzar to know and find God's place for him in God's purposes. It's something for all of us to discover. And it's what God declares is the purpose even of your challenges and mine. Well, God's story doesn't end with Nebuchadnezzar. We need to know that because when he says that God's purposes will stand, when he says that God does what he pleases, uh, it's not just that we are powerless to resist him. It's that we would be stupid if we do because God's purposes in God's story, in God's word, leads us to Jesus, the King of Kings, the one that Israel was chastised to be the instrument by which he came into the world. So even Israel's captivity was to remind them that history was not all about them, but about the Saviour who would be born through their descendants, as promised to Abraham, one who would bring blessing to all the nations, even to Babylon, if they turned to him. Colin's song declares that Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. Jesus is the boss of everything. Because he died for sin, he rose again to rule. He's exalted 
as the king. The wonderful message, of course, is that Jesus is like the undercover boss. I don't know if you've ever watched that show. I, I find all those shows a bit annoying. But there's something good in that show, I think, where the undercover boss comes to understand what it's like to work in an environment where, where often they're not acknowledged, they're not appreciated. And he finds these people that are wonderful servants. But the undercover boss comes along to encourage and to help. And as we struggle through life, wondering why at times, and wishing for Jesus to come, we need to remember that Jesus understands. He's the undercover boss who comes to live with us. So this great God, this King of Kings, this King of Heaven, is actually a king who lived with us, who knows what it's like to be in this world, to be opposed, to be hurt, to be killed, to be mocked, but to also go before us to make a way to a better place one day. And you know, Australian culture is one that lives for me and it lives for now. And so we need to step back like Nebuchadnezzar and recognise that we are part of history, of God's story, of a bigger story. We just want to think about that a bit more in conclusion. Because one of the things that comes out of the message in Revelation 18 is that there is another Babylon that history has revealed and we are commanded to come out from her. And it is interesting, isn't it, that the Babylonian empire that Nebuchadnezzar ruled is just a pile of ruins today. But Revelation 18 speaks of another Babylon. In verse 3 of that chapter, it says that that Babylon is a place of adultery. It uses the word excessive luxuries. It says in the last verse of that chapter that in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. So while it is probably a reference to Rome in the first century when Revelation 18 was written, Rome who were opposed to God and his people, Rome who became a place of excessive luxury to a point where it imploded, (laughs) they outspent their ability to recover. Excessive luxury, adultery, sins of every kind, including the murder of God's people. But in a sense, Rome or Babylon becomes a symbol. It becomes typical of every kingdom and every people that rejects God and tries to destroy his people. And what is the mark of those kingdoms? What is the mark of the West today? What is it that would mark any nation? Uh, It's excessive luxury, is it not? When we oppose God, we make gods of his gifts. When we oppose God... We try to get rid of his morality because we want to live as we want to live when we want to live that way. And so the Babylon of today is anywhere where you find excessive luxury that rejects God and seeks to get rid of the voice of his people. Now for us as Christians, we can note first of all that God is still the most high God. He is still the king of heaven. We need not fear the Babylonian rulers of today because they're doomed as the first Babylon was. But in Revelation 18.4, it commands his people to come out from her. And we could say, well, that's first a command to the Nebuchadnezzars to come out from Babylon and acknowledge God as the king of heaven. And that's true. 
but the command is actually to the people of God. One of our problems in the church in the West today is that in our attempt to have a mission to the world, we, we have been, in a sense, converted by the world. And you know what? We pray to God not wanting to lose our luxuries and our prosperity and peace. But a whole lot of that which the church enjoys today is Babylon, not the kingdom of God. I'm not saying we should pray for suffering. I don't like suffering any more than you do. But what I'm saying we should pray is for the honour of the Most High God. And if it means losing something of the standard of living and the freedoms we have in Australia, that Babylon might recognise they are in opposition to the living God of heaven, then as the church we should be prepared to pay that price. And let's think about it. In many parts of the world, uh, they have suffered this already in the last 2000. It's only the West. It's only, it's only those countries that have been founded in some way on some Christian principle that have not suffered yet. But where there has been suffering, you know what happens? There is a great turning to God. The church prospers. God is glorified as the king of heaven. The kingdom of God comes to men when the church is humbled like Nebuchadnezzar was. This command to come out of Babylon is not a command necessarily for us to give everything away and every comfort we have away. But there is a great warning in this that if we find, as, as Nebuchadnezzar did, being at home in our palace, contented, is a very dangerous place to be. If we are not living for the God of heaven in humility and using what he's given us for his glory. God will not let us keep it if it hinders his kingdom and it hinders others coming to know him. But let's finish now very briefly in a really good place. You know what? We have a great message here where we began, and that is, that if we as Christians make it our purpose, and let me urge you to do that, let's make it our purpose to demonstrate to the world the wonderful difference it makes knowing the King of Heaven. It will be seen in how we use what he's given us to help others and to promote mission, uh, to show hospitality, to even show love to those who deny the King of Heaven now. Now this should be also seen in the way we face our trials and hardships. Uh, the people of God should not be a people who lose hope in hardship, whether it be your health or it be that final day or it be the struggles that come when you're unemployed or the struggles that come through losing loved ones and all those things. What should be seen in us is a confidence in the King of Heaven, even in the midst of grief and in the midst of trial. The world around us should see the hope that we have, you see, whether we have or we do not have. The way we face those crises, should, they should see that the King of Heaven rules and that we trust him to rule for us. That we trust that through our circumstances, others will come to see the King of Heaven. And so be a Nebuchadnezzar, because you notice how he began that chapter. He says, I want to tell you about this King of Heaven and what he's done for me. Now we talk about who preached the gospel first in the Bible. 
Well, it's all the way through, isn't it? And Nebuchadnezzar is another example. He's a gospel preacher here. He's saying, I want to tell you. And when you go into the world, to the workplace, to the university, to your neighbours, people will not want to hear in general about the king of heaven. So sometimes it's better if they don't want to listen to your arguments in defence of the Bible and in defence of Christian morality, that you try at least to do this, as Nebuchadnezzar did, to say to them, can you give me ten minutes to tell you about the God and what he's done for me? And if you're living that out in your life, if you're showing a different attitude to work, even to unfairness at work, and the New Testament addresses all those things, if you do everything you do, not just to get a paycheck at the end of the week or a degree at the end of university or a new home at the end of your career and a good retirement, if you do everything to honour the King of Heaven and testify to Him, then people will say, your message and your walk go together, and who is this God? One of the preachers I listen to sometimes is Tim Keller. And in a recent podcast, he told the story of a woman he'd never seen at church. Some of you might have heard this. But I thought it was really profound, this. So Tim Keller sees this woman he's never seen before, and he goes up to her after church, and he says, I've never met you before. How did you come to be at church? And she said, well, it's, she said, you need to know I'm not a Christian. And he said, well, what brings you to church? And she said, well... In my workplace, in the company I worked for, I made a a really big mistake and it was a real career ender. And she said, the guy above me, the boss, he took the blame for it. He told the people above him in the company that he he would take responsibility for that problem, for not having managed her position and doing all he could have done. So he took the rap for it. So she was expecting to get in big strife, maybe lose her job, certainly never get promoted again. And she went to him and she said, why did you do that? And he said, ultimately, because she had to push him for the answer, he said, well, I have, um, you know, I have a fair bit of credit in this company, so I could take the rap for this and it's really not going to affect my future at all but it would have really blown your future. She said, but why? And ultimately he said to her, it's because there was another person who did that for me. She said, who? And he said, Jesus. Now isn't that an amazing story? And she said, who is this God? Where do you go to church? And so she went to church. Now that's one example. I'm not saying we're all in that position to do that. But we're certainly all in a position to live differently from the world in family, in marriage, in work, in uni, in everything we do, in our attitude to neighbours, in our attitude to government, in our attitude to persecution that would demonstrate a hope in the Most High God to introduce him to others. That's a starting point. The Bible's got much more to God's story, doesn't it? But start by presenting a creator that people don't know, a creator who loves us, who ultimately sent his son to die for us. Parents, read Bible stories to your children because that's what's going to give them what children in school with anxiety today don't have. I'm not saying they'll never face anxiety or question their identity, but they have a foundation on which to build their hope and certainty in the Most High God.
And if you're still exploring all this, keep exploring. But know this, you'll never find a God you can bend to do what you want. You need to know that you need to come under the story of this God, that he might shape you to find your true created purpose, saved purpose in him. And we pray that that will be true. Well, let me close in prayer now. Heavenly Father, you know the things that make us afraid, that makes us anxious, that give us concern for the future. Certainly as parents and grandparents, we think what a horrible world to bring babies into. But Heavenly Father, it's been like this before. It's even worse in other countries. And you are the most high God. Lord, you know our trials physically, you know our trials relationally, you know the things that seem to be too powerful for us to change and to deal with, you know even the sins that might have a grip on the lives of some in this building today that they just cannot shake. And of course they can't, Lord, because you alone are the Most High God. And Lord, you are the one who rules, but you are the one who saves Pray that we would each leave this place and face the week ahead, not just with hope in you as our sovereign God, but with a real burden in our hearts, with a message we want to share with others to be able to tell them what you have done for us. And we ask you to help us to think about that, to prepare ourselves for that in the week ahead, to set apart you as Lord, as we read, in 1 Peter 3.15, to set apart you as the Most High God, but also to be prepared to be able to share the reason for the hope we have in your rule and in your work in our lives. Lord, make that real for us afresh, we pray. And I pray for this church again, that, Lord, you would lead them into effective and fruitful ministry for you in the world that others will come to know the Most High God of Heaven and come to have that hope regardless how difficult this world may become. And we pray that for parents, we pray that in marriage, we pray that for those at uni and at work, pray that for retirees, that they might all find a way to express this hope in the Sovereign God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.